So this week, we're going to get into week two of the posture and pattern of prayer. The posture is how we place ourselves before God when we pray. The pattern is how Jesus taught us to pray. I love what the early church father, Tertullian, said about this prayer. He called the Lord's Prayer the gospel abbreviated. In all the aspects of redemptive history, who God is and what we're dependent on him for is condensed into this pattern. And this pattern of the Lord's Prayer uh, was meant to be read as a prayer, but it was also meant to be a guideline for us. What takes prominence in our prayer? How do we how do we pray for certain things and how do we look to God for our provider of those things? But usually when we hear the Lord's Prayer, it's read in some kind of uh, mechanistic fashion. It's it's just ran through uh, sometimes aimlessly. We talked about this a, a few weeks ago about when you pray, don't pray with just vain repetition. You know, there's an irony here because many times the Lord's prayer is the one that is vainly repeated uh, without really being thought through. Um, and I think one of the greatest examples of that, if any of you have ever played sports, uh, usually if your coaches were allowed to do it when you played sports, they would pray uh, or you'd have a, a chaplain play before a game, pray before a game. And many times it would be the Lord's prayer. Um, one of the greatest examples of this was uh, if you are a football fan and if you lived through the 80s of great smash mouth football, the best example of that was probably the Chicago Bears. Um, their, their coach, Mike Ditka, was probably the, the, the king of smash mouth himself when he was a linebacker. But now he's the coach of the 85 Bears, who kind of the the team of the 80s. So there's this great story, and I checked on it. It is a true story. Uh, John Casas is a uh, kind of world-renowned, not world-renowned, but he's a renowned motivational speaker. He used to be the chaplain for the Chicago Bears. So Mike Dick is giving his halftime speech, and um, he's, he's uh, you know, going through what the, the game plan is for the second half. And so he looks over at William Refrigerator Perry. Now, if you've never seen 80s football, just look up William Refrigerator Perry and YouTube. They called him Refrigerator for a reason. He was built like a refrigerator. He was tall and he was wide and he usually played defense, but when they gave him the ball, he just plowed everybody over. So he looks over at the fridge and he said, Fridge, when I'm done with this speech, would you, would you lead us in the Lord's Prayer? A big black man's face goes white. He was like shell-shocked. Everyone in the team knew he did not know the Lord's Prayer. And so Jim McMahon, and if you know this team, he was kind of the wild boy quarterback. And he leans over to John Casas, who's the chaplain, and he says, I bet you 50 bucks Fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. So Casas sees the irony here that he's about to, that he's in chapel with the Bears and he's going to bet 50 bucks on a prayer. But he, he, he takes him up on it. He said, everyone knows the Lord's Prayer. So Ditka goes through his whole spiel. And when it's, when it's done, he said, all right, Fridge, you're on. So Fridge bows his head and he says, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. McMahon leans over to Casus and says, here's your 50 bucks. I didn't think he knew it. <laughs> True story. You can't make that stuff up. And the, the moral of the story, I think there's one, is that, is that 
the Lord's Prayer is often overlooked. And we, we think we understand it. We think we, we know what, what it means. But the truth of the Lord's Prayer is, is our mediator, Christ, teaching us how to mediate. You ever thought about that? The one who is mediating on our behalf before the Father is teaching us how to mediate. This is not some trivial uh, process that we just go through to get through. We are taught from God who God is and how we are to rely on him. Let's read our passage this morning. I'll read it slowly. Let's meditate on it. I'm going to pray. Uh, and then we're going to go through the second half of the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to start in verse 9 of uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. A name that requires such reverence that your people Israel wouldn't even speak it. That we would tremble at the very thought of coming before your presence. But we don't have to tremble because the Holy of Holies has come out of the sacred area and come into the hearts of those who belong to him. The most amazing truth in the prayer life of the church is that we are divided, we are invited into the divine conversation. The Son teaches us how to pray through the Spirit, lifting up all our prayers to the Father. As your people, we share in the greatest conversation that has gone out throughout history. And as we learn about prayer this morning, let us not pray with a focus on ourselves and for selfish gain, but let us pray for your glory, for your will to be done, for your kingdom to come. You're a Father. You love us. We know you will provide for us. We know we can trust in you for forgiveness, and we know we can trust in you for protection. And out of that forgiveness, let us forgive others. Let us have your heart for the sins of the world and declare your gospel boldly. Lord, we love you and we praise you and lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, I'll give you a quick summary of what we discussed last week. We looked at two verses last week, and I told you I probably could have spent 10 weeks on it. But last week we saw we have to have this correct posture before God. We need to recognize him as our father. There is an intimacy there. He is in heaven to recognize that he is above all things and recognize his place. He's not our equal. We're not we're not pleading with him. We are coming before the king of all heaven and earth. And we are to make his name holy, make his name great, declare it on our lips Declare it to those that we meet. Sanctify it. Hollow it. Setting it apart from all the other gods and idols of the world. And we are to commend his kingdom, the finished work of Christ, and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Submitting to his word 
as we do, we seek to do his will on earth until it becomes like heaven when Christ comes again. That's what we discussed last week. This week, we bring it back down to earth. Our greatest needs, our three greatest needs are that of provision, pardon, and protection. Now, um, I wish I could take credit for this framework. Last week, I told you I love reading uh, A.W. Pink's book on the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and this is so brilliant. I wish I thought of it, but I can't take credit for it. Uh, so he describes how these three peti- petitions for provision, pardon, uh, he calls it forgiveness and um, preservation, show us this Trinitarian identity of God. So we pray to God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. But when we pray for ourselves... We pray for our needs from the Father, from the Son, and from the Spirit. We recognize that every good gift comes from our Father above. Our provision comes from the Father. We recognize that our debts were forgiven by Christ. Our pardon comes from the Son of God. And not being led into temptation and being delivered from evil is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, protecting and preserving us till we are one day glorified. We're going to flesh that out a little bit here. But I love that, that picture of praying specifically for what the Father gives, what the Son has accomplished, and what the Spirit continues to do in us. So let's look at that first in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, this is a reliance on the Father for provision. Before we get into daily and, and bread, I want to point you to the probably the best summary passage about this uh, in scripture. If you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30. We're also going to sing about this in response later. Uh, I love this song. It's been such a blessing to me. But we're going to sing this this very concept. Proverbs chapter 30. We're going to start in verse 7. So when they were closing the book of Proverbs, they wanted to sum up what are two things To ask of the Lord before I die. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. One, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you. Say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Our desire is not to be rich in the things of this world. Or to be poor to sink our own humility. But to be content in the provision of the Lord. And to recognize that an extreme on on either end can be a temptation to us. I love what what, uh, Matthew Henry says about this first petition in the Lord's Prayer. That bread comes first, because without that provision, we're not able to do anything else. It's our most basic need. Um, And this idea of bread in the Hebrew context is basically all provision. It's it's sustenance. When they say daily bread, uh, yes, they mean bread. Yes, they mean food. But they also mean uh, shelter, housing, health, just bread, just what I need daily. We also think about in their culture, too, Uh, that you went shopping that day for what you were going to cook and what you had on hand is is, is what you ate. I mean, many people were waiting day after day for what they needed for that day. Very much uh, Israel in in the wilderness kind of a picture. 
Uh, they didn't have the abundance of grocery stores that we have. So this is a very necessary prayer. Jesus teaches to give us our daily bread. We continue in this corporate prayer. It's not give me our daily bread. We're not to think about ourselves only, but we pray for our family. We pray for our body. We pray for brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And we saw this in the early church lived out very well, that no one in the body went hungry. Those who fellowship together shared with one another. And it was, it was a recognition of who your family is, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus himself took this quite literally. In his ministry, he didn't buy a house. He was very dependent on the Lord. He told them, I don't have a place to lay my head. When he sent out his disciples, he told them, don't take extra provisions. A laborer is worth his wages. You will go into a town, and if the Lord is... If the Lord is there, they will provide for you. If he's not, keep moving. So Jesus lived this and taught this, this provision on the Father. Um, good friends of mine went on a mission trip to Malawi. They've been a few times. And in Malawi, when they, when they pray the Lord's Prayer, they pray this a little different. Because for them, they are literally praying for their day's meal, not the next day's. They wake up in the morning, so I have a cup full of rice. Can I work today so I can find meat, so I can find vegetables to feed my family? It's a very different prayer when you have to pray like that every day. But you know the amazing thing about it? They pray it joyfully. They pray it in worship, in awe, because every day God provides. So does that mean we shouldn't buy food for tomorrow? You guys know the answer to that. You know, we, we need to be stewards of, of what God's given us. We need to recognize the culture that we're in. But even when we're asking for our physical needs, we do it from a humble posture. Now, we do it in the sense of recognizing that our Father loves us and He will provide for us. But yet to be content in what He gives us. If you turn to 1 Timothy for me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. He makes this, this pretty clear for us. As Paul writes to a young pastor, what does he encourage him? 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. But, godly, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we, can take, uh, we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We are to be content with food and clothing. These bare essentials, that's, that's why when we ask for ourselves, we ask for the bare minimum. Knowing that our Father is good and He will give us way more than we ask for. He will continue to provide in abundance for those who love Him. We also recognize that we need to be daily dependent on him because this could be taken at any time. You know, I don't know if you know this, but we are one major drought, one major frost, uh, one major power outage away from nationwide chaos when it comes to food. If there was a, if there was a nationwide drought, it's a nationwide frost, power went out and production stopped today, we'd have two to three days for all the food and all the stores would disappear. We got a little bit of a buffer. Now, I don't say that to be morbid and, and, and to, to scare you, 
But when we put our trust in these, in these processes, they can go at any time. But we recognize, just like the birds of the air, they're not thinking about where their next meal comes from, but God provides for them. How much more does your father love you than the birds of the air? Do we fret over what happens in the world? Do we fret over things that, that could fail us? We could. Then we wouldn't trust in who is truly providing for us, our father who loves us. You know, it's also important to recognize that this contentment, it's not entitlement. You know, we aren't owed these, these things. Just like a loving father will give to us generously, he gives to his children. Obedient children work and are good stewards of what the Lord's given them in response. Proverbs touches on this, this concept of bread several different times. I'm not going to uh, have, have you turn there, but I will give you the verses. Uh, Proverbs 12, 11 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 20, 13 says, Love not sleep, lest you come into poverty. Open your eyes and you have plenty of bread. Proverbs 31, 27, that Proverbs woman, they, the writer Proverbs says about her, She looks well into the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Us recognizing that all of our good gifts come from our Father also recognize that we are to be faithful stewards and faithful workers in what he's given us and to be wise in everything that he has provided for us. Now, we are stewards who approach God daily and we are to be reliant on him daily and not to worry about the needs of tomorrow, not to plot and scheme with idle pursuits, but to daily walk in the Lord. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, about not being anxious about tomorrow, about building up treasures for ourselves on earth and not in heaven. But the sad thing is many Christians only check in with God every once in a while, once their five-year plan gets, gets interrupted. How often do we walk with him daily and pray for our needs daily and trust in him daily and where he has us today? Because he was faithful yesterday. He was faithful the day before. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Moses. He was faithful to David. If you are his child, he is faithful. He will be faithful tomorrow and the day after and the month after and the year after. Amen. Amen. As we continue in this prayer, you'll see in the next two verses, they begin with and. Now, we spit and out uh, when we can't think of the next word. But when the gospel writers wrote and, Mark especially, he used it more than anyone. Uh, but and means a connection. Whenever and is, is linking two thoughts together, it means that they are inextricably linked and you can't separate them. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. So we're reliant on the Father for provision. We're now reliant on the Son for protection, excuse me, for justification. A convict who is on death row can have all the meals he wants, but without the pardon, the meals are meaningless. So we look to the Father for provision, we look to the Son for pardon, recognizing that we have a debt. I want to talk about this word debt, and uh, someone asked me this week, uh, is it debts or is it trespasses? We're going to discuss that this morning. We're going to talk about the difference between the two. This word in Greek is debts. It, it means something that requires 
restitution. It is a sin. It is an, an offense that requires a price to be paid. It's not simply a stumbling, and we'll get into trespass in just a moment. So debt is something that is owed. Forgive us what we owe, so we forgive those who owe us. This word uh, forgive is the same word in, in the Gospels that is used for pardon, deliverance, or liberty, to, to, to liberate. It's this freeing from what we are owed. And forgiveness of sins is essential. So if our sins weren't forgiven, we'd still be under the dominance of them. We would still be owed a debt that we couldn't pay. But while we were still yet sins, excuse me, slaves to sin, we remained slaves until a propitiation was paid, a price. The Christ paid the debt that only he could pay for our behalf. And now we are slaves to righteousness. And our debt that was owed because of sin is now owed to our brother who died in our place for an unimaginable sum. We've all heard this. We all know this, that, okay, yes, my sins need to be forgiven. But do we? Do we know that every offense against God is a capital offense? Every offense against God is deserving of death. This little baby that a lot of people want to keep in a manger grew up to be a man who took those offenses with him on the cross. And our brother is our justification. The son of God became our pardon. So the question here, maybe you were thinking the same thing I was thinking. So do we continue to pray for forgiveness if we've been forgiven in Christ? It's a good question. A moment ago, I mentioned sin's dominance. Uh, there's... There's this theological doctrine that's helped me out a lot. The difference between the dominance of, of sin that is inescapable, that is slavery, that is chains, that leads to death, which Christ took with him on the cross, and sin's influence, which continues. Some people, when they came to Christ, they get this picture that everything's going to be okay, then they realize, wait, I still sin, I still struggle. People still sin against me. What do I do with that? There's a difference between recognizing the sin that leads to death and a trespass, which we'll get to in a moment. So sin's dominance is taken with Christ with him on the cross. But sin's influence continues. And so, yes, repentance is a good process for the believer. It's a spiritual discipline that reminds us of our debt to our father, reminds us that, our son, that his son is our savior. Repentance is a good thing. Repentance means simply a turning, and we've talked about this before. But as believers, we do this. We see ourselves looking at sin and we turn toward Christ and ask forgiveness. And there's restoration and there's healing in that because our brother is our mediator. Because sin's influence every day causes me to offend God. Every day I offend God. Every day I'm reminded how I can't do this on my own strength. How I need the pardon. I might as well be on death row myself. You look at David and Solomon. These are men who were who, who lifted up to be the leaders of Israel. And they fell and they fell hard. They trusted in the Lord and their faith was in him. But sin's influence still caused them to stumble. But David wisely recognized when he's caught with Bathsheba, comes before the Lord and says, before you and you only have I sinned. 
he recognized first and foremost his debt was to the Lord. And he poured out in humble repentance for his sin. And our forgiveness, our being able to forgive one another, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, is so linked to the, to the forgiveness that we've experienced in Christ that we can't separate the two. So we, re- we remember every time that someone wrongs us, every time someone sins against us, every time we hold something against our brother in Christ, we remember all that Christ has forgiven us. And that is the reminder. That's why we can forgive. That's why Christians are different than everyone else. Because we know we need forgiveness. We know how much we've been forgiven. We know that in that forgiveness there is peace and there is, and there is healing. And if I can forgive my brother to be restored to him, and if I can forgive others so that they will hear the good news, the gospel of what Christ did in my life, I need to humble myself and do that. And I struggle with it. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. This next petition is also linked by and. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we've seen that the Father provides. We've seen that the Son pardons. And the Spirit protects. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As the Spirit works in our lives, He protects us from continued sin. Keeps us from temptation. Keeps us from evil. That is our sanctification. That is our spiritual growth. But first, there's a recognition here that there is temptation and there is evil. In the life of a believer, we are not immune to this. It's the first thing we need to see, that sin's influence still remains. But God is sovereign over all things. And certainly, he's able to control whether we are led into temptation or not. The way this is spoken in Greek is very interesting. This is called a a, a permissive imperative. So it's basically asking permission while giving a command. Kind of a weird thought in English, but it's essentially saying, do not allow us to be led into temptation. It's saying, God, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you. And it's a strong plea, don't allow us to be led into temptation. Thankfully, if we have been pardoned by the Son, we are walking in the Spirit, and not according to the flesh. And the Spirit leads and guides and protects us doesn't mean that testing won't come and temptation won't come. Jesus, before he began his ministry, he went into the wilderness. How did he get there? He was led by the Spirit. He was tempted. He wasn't tempted by God. He was tempted by Satan, but the Spirit preserved him. I love what James says about this. Turn to the book of James for me. James chapter 1. We're going to stay there for just a moment. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Excuse me. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God tempts no one. But we are tempted by our own sinful desires. And Satan was trying to see if this Jesus was, was really what he was supposed to be. Did Jesus have any selfish desires? Would he have given in to these, these temptations of, of, of earthly riches? But we saw that Jesus came out of it, tempted in every way, yet did not sin. And then he began his ministry. So why are, are we tempted? For God's glory. For when the Spirit brings us through, for when we come out of temptation, focused on the Lord, that God gets the glory. The ultimate battle has been won, that sin's influence may come for a time, but it cannot derail God's people. And so I think it's important to recognize there's a difference between temptation and testing. God does test his people. James is going to show us that in just a moment. But in the testing, he will not tempt you to sin. James also tells us about testing. I think about, about, about Job. Job is the perfect example here. Job was led into temptation. God meant it as a test. Satan meant it as a temptation. But Job, the man of God that he was, would not curse God. He would not deny his father in heaven. And God gave him back what he had lost and double. And that brought God glory. And Satan was shamed once again. So, but why does God test us? Well, we're still in James chapter 1. Look at verse 2 and 3 for me. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A few weeks ago, we talked about perfection and what that means in a Christian sense. It means wholeness. Our faith is tested so that we come out stronger. We come out reliant on the Lord and we can become full and perfect in his sight. Testing is a good thing. It comes from God. It is a trial that leads to steadfastness. Wish there was another word because that's really hard to get out twice in a row. I love that picture because if it was up to us, we wouldn't choose the hard things of this life to grow us, would we? We choose the easy things. Oh, why can't it be easy? Why can't this just be written out in a manual somewhere? But God knows how to grow his people. He knows that through stress and through the, the trials of, of life, we learn to trust in him. We learn to walk with him. We learn to grow in him and grow in his truth. So why are we tempted for God's glory? Show that Satan doesn't have power over us. Why are we tested for our sanctification, for our growth? So we don't have to fear temptation. Satan has already lost. We know the end of the story. We don't have to fear trial because it is for our good and our Father loves us. We will look back on it and say, I could not have grown if it was not for that experience. So this closes with, but deliver us from evil. 
So this is very tough in the Greek. Some of your, your Bibles may say the evil one. Uh, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Uh, scholars are debating on this because of where the, the article is. You don't need to know that. What you need to know is either one applies. Whether it's deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one, it still applies. Um, and it's this continuing theme of protection, knowing who our enemy is, that we are, we are sons and daughters of, of light. We are people of light. We are not, we are not subject to the evil one. And uh, just like there's a trinity that is fleshed out in this, this prayer, there's a trinity of evil as well. And the great reformers throughout history have talked about the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the system around us, everything that is not of Christ is designed to keep you from Christ. It is designed to tempt you and lead you astray. Your own flesh, born in iniquity, bearing in the, the sins of Adam, is, is by nature... Questioning God and tempting you, leading you astray. And the devil, who is the prince of the power of the air, who rules on this earth for a time, his goal is to cause you to stumble. His goal is to, to point you away from Christ. The world, the flesh, and the devil work against us. So yes, on this earth we are outnumbered, but we are not outgunned. Let me say that again. We are outnumbered, but we are not outgunned. We have more power at our disposal than Satan could ever dream of. The living God is living inside of us. And that is the beauty of this, this prayer. It's that we are not praying for something. We are praying because of something. Praying because of who our father is. Because of what our son, of what, what his son did and what the spirit continues to do. Jesus makes his connection in John chapter 17. On uh, this high priestly prayer, if you turn there with me. John 17, I want to read 14 through 17. I told you in this series you're going to get your uh, Bible drills on and you're going to be flipping back and forth. And I, I want you guys to get comfortable in Scripture. I want you uh, to look at prayer biblically. John 17, verse 14. John 17, 14 through 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that, they, that you would take them out of the world, but to, that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But pay attention to verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus recognized that we're still in the world. Ask the Father on our behalf, keep them from the evil one. And how do we do that? Sanctify them. Set them apart by your word. Last week we saw how do we know what God's will is for our lives? We stay rooted in his word. How are we kept from the evil one? We stay rooted in his word. We can go on and on and on. How are we kept from temptation? Stay rooted in his word. How do we come through trials? Stay rooted in his word. Simple, but difficult. To daily walk according to God's word, to stay in it, to challenge ourselves according to the truth of Scripture. And Jesus is praying for our sanctification according to his word because he knows the Spirit will reveal all truth to us. 
So as we move on, you notice something is missing here. I'm just going to do a quick comment on this. Because normally we would say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But the new Bible translations don't have that. Why is that not there? Quick note here. Um, all of the earliest manuscripts we, we have do not include this. Um, basically, they want to be uh, true to the earliest manuscripts that we have. And so probably the understanding that we have is that this prayer uh, was a, a model prayer by Christ, and it was read in the early churches. And those words that they say, and for, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, those are biblical words. We see those other places in Scripture, and those are good things. That's a good thing to pray. And when we pray that, you absolutely should add that at the end. Uh, but when it was brought into corporate worship, that was probably added several hundred years later. Uh, and so that's why we don't include it in our modern translations. It's a good thing to pray. It's not a, a bad thing that it's, that it's there. Uh, but just so you guys know, when there are every secular institution in the world is trying to tear apart Scripture, you know that faithful biblical scholars are more critical of our text than the, than the secularists are. There are people who study day and night tirelessly to make sure that our scriptures are above reproach. And we are honest about that because if you look in your ESV, there will be notes at the bottom. Anytime there's any discrepancy, anytime there's any d dispute, we, we own it. We put it right up front. Here's what we're unsure of. But I want you to be sure of this. That every doctrine that we believe and hold dearly is undisputed in scripture and is not in dispute whenever these things come up. They're usually minor issues. Because if we take this passage out, we can see for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We see it many places. We read it in 1 Samuel last, last week. So hopefully that, that helps a little bit. Um, so I want to talk quickly ab about these last two verses, 14 and 15, about sin's influence. So this idea of trespass. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will, forgive, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. So it's Debts we talked about, it's an offense where a price is owed. A trespass is, is a falling away or a stumbling. Uh, the, the NASB calls this transgression, which is probably best. But think about it like this. If I trespass on your lawn, I have, I have walked away from where I'm supposed to be. I am in the wrong. I have stumbled onto your property and I don't belong there. And I ask for your forgiveness because forgive me, I have trespassed on your property without being there. I don't owe you a debt because of that. But if I steal from you, if I do something that requires a price to be paid, that is a debt. If I just walk off the path, that is a, that is a, a trespass. So we, we see the difference between sin that leads to death and sin that is a stumbling where we need to ask forgiveness for. Hopefully, is that clear? Clear? Does that help? Nods, please? Yes? Okay. If you have questions after, let me know. Um, and, you know, from this posture of humility, recognize that our debts are, are, are paid, we can forgive the trespasses. We can forgive the stumblings of others because of all the things we've been forgiven of. You know, how can we give thanks for the forgiveness that is in our lives and the peace and joy and clean conscience to come, that comes with knowing that we are forgiven and we're still holding grudges against others? How can we praise the Lord for our forgivenesses, for what we've been forgiven? We have a difficulty forgiving others. Um, I want to close with, with, with this passage. I think this is really helpful, and I, I want to make sure we get there. Uh, Luke chapter 7, 
verse 41. Jesus gives this picture, Luke 7, 41, of a woman who's called a woman of the city, and she was a prostitute. And he's meeting with the self-righteous religious people as, as usual. You know, they have their idea of how things should be. Um, but Jesus keys in on something very, very important here. I'm going I'm to read uh, 7, 41 through 48. So, you know, this is the uh, woman who had the alabaster flask of, of ointment, breaks it on Jesus' feet. And like, what, what, is, what is she doing? Why are you allowing this prostitute to touch you? Here's what Jesus says, Luke 7, 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the largest debt. And Jesus said to them, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. And she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Let me let you guys in on a secret. We are not the self-righteous Pharisees in this picture. We, the prostitute with the great debt, who is crying because there is no hope for forgiveness of the, the multitude of sins that she has, and that posture that she takes, crying at the feet of her Savior, it's her Savior. It's her salvation. Her faith has made her well. Her sins are forgiven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is the kingdom of God. And that is this idea of forgiveness. That if we take that posture in our sins, how easy is it to forgive others? How easy is it not to get caught up on little things because our sins are so great? And that's why we must be honest with one another. Because there is a danger here in the Christian life. Unforgiveness and unrepentant sin. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We need to rely on one another and confess our sins to one another so that we can be reconciled before God and before each other. That is the Christian life. Your sin is ugly. My sin is, is ugly. We don't need to put on this facade like we have it together all the time. It's okay to say, I need help. I need prayer. Forgive me. I sinned against you. So how do we conclude this morning? This is a continued reminder of our dependence on the Lord. I mean, I know I went fast. and I know I covered a lot. Thank you for bearing with me. I would have loved to spend 10 weeks on this. Um, but this was humbling for me to walk through this and to think about all the times that I had read through the Lord's prayer and not reflected on every line and every word. And I don't reflect enough on my need for him, my reliance on the Father to provide for me daily, my reliance on the Son for my pardon and that my sins that I still beat myself up about, he bore with him on the cross. I don't rely enough on the Holy Spirit to guide me day after day. I tend to rely on my own strength 
a lot more than I should. That should be our posture before our God. I sin, forgive me. It should be our posture before our brothers. Sin, forgive me. Because I have been forgiven. My sins are great. Jesus taught us to pray like this so we would know who God is, how we are dependent on him, that we would know where our salvation comes from, and that we would have the confidence to declare his gospel to others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder. This humble reminder that you are God and I am not. That you are Lord of all creation. That you reign over all things. Your throne is in heaven. Your name is great. Your kingdom is come in your son and your kingdom will be fulfilled in him one day, that we get to be a part of that. That we can come to you for our daily needs, can come to you in thanksgiving, can come to you in the midst of trial and temptation, can come to you because you are our Father and you love us. Lord, I pray that we would walk in this world according to your word, in neither poverty nor riches, but in godly contentment toward heavenly gain. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.